I get some variation of the question, how do I know if it's right to marry someone who's an addict frequently in either my emails or DMs? And it's a great question. So today, Neil and I are going to share our experience of knowing it was right to get married and how we landed on that decision and how you can determine this for yourself as well. If this message resonates with you or any other episode we've shared, we would love it if you would leave us a review. And if you know someone who could benefit from this podcast episode or any other that we've done before, please share it with them. Thank you so much for being here, for spending your time with us. We love you and appreciate you so much. I get the question all the time, at least once a month, if not more, should I marry someone who's an addict? And they, people will email me or DM me. And can you imagine if I, if I had asked that when you and I were dating, what do you think the answer would have been for most people? Probably no. Yeah, that's the answer my parents gave me. <laughs> and that's the answer that a lot of people gave me actually. But obviously we got married. And so we're going to talk about that today and what my advice is and what Neil's advice is and how to kind of unpack this and make a good decision. I just want to differentiate too, when I say addict, we're talking about truly someone who has an addiction. And we heard an absolutely amazing explanation of this recently in a meeting. I think I even, I think we shared it in a podcast episode somewhat recently. I can't remember which episode, but it was a leader who came in and said, listen, as far as pornography addiction goes, there are three categories. Okay. We've got the person who has stumbled upon it and not looked for it. Or they've seen it once or twice. Category one, clearly not an addict. Category number two, someone who has pulled it up here or there, or they've seen it here or there. They're working to try to not look at it anymore but it's not an everyday part of their life. That's like still category number two, not an addict. Category number three is someone who has like a prolonged problem with constantly feeling the need to turn to it over and over again. And they cannot seem to break themselves away, even with parental help or religious leader or any kind of a mentor's help or whatever. They just feel like a dependency on going back to it over and over. And it's a prolonged problem where they cannot seem to cut off that addictive behavior of looking at it over and over again, or for long periods of time, or for a long period of time has struggled with trying to break themselves away. That is, that's what we're talking about when we say an addict. And so with pornography addiction, or really with any other, like you're going to get somebody who has done things that maybe they've, there are plenty of adults, obviously, who and most people can agree on this. There's plenty of adults who can have a drink at a dinner or a bar or whatever, have one or two drinks and they're done and they're good. And then there's the person who walks into the bar and it's never one or two, it's 13. And that's who we're talking about when we say an addict. I just want to clarify that because I think sometimes people can think like, oh, if you had exposure to pornography or drugs or alcohol or whatever it may be one time, then that makes you an addict. And that's definitely not what we're saying here. So just to clarify that. So I actually was asked a few years ago to write an article for our church's magazine about this. And if you, well, you can even Google this, or if you have the gospel library app, you can search. I decided to marry a recovering pornography addict. 
and it'll come up. The article will come up. We can also put it in the show notes, but it kind of tells the story and we can tell the story too, the briefly. I mean, we've told it on my blog and in other places, but if you're finding us for the first time, here's the story in a nutshell. So Neil and I met in Lake Powell and became friends, started dating a couple months after and just totally fell in love. And it was funny. I still remember your mom told me, I I think it may have even been the first time that I officially met her. She said, just so you know, Neil breaks up with all of his girlfriends at the three month mark. And I was kind of like, oh, wow. Okay. But it was almost like a challenge to me. Like, oh, that's not going to happen to me. And I was the first girl that you said, I love you too, since you had come home from your mission. Right? Right. Unless this was a, unless this was a story you told every girl. Okay. So I thought, oh my gosh, everything's going perfectly. We're in love. And then you did what? Three days before Christmas. I broke things off. I was. Broke things off. You dumped me. Oh, I'm sorry. That's another word for it. Yeah. It was devastating. I just cried and cried all through Christmas. And I still remember my sister too being like, you just cry every Christmas. Because, you know, the Christmas before that I had been going through a divorce. The Christmas before that I was in a really difficult marriage. Anyway, on and on. Many Christmases in a row I had been dumped or been in a sad situation. So it was very sad. And then after, a few days after Christmas, I don't know how much longer after, but I just finally called you and said, can you just explain this to me? Because this just doesn't make any sense. There was nothing that led up to this. There's, I thought everything was going so well. You had told me you loved me. And then what was your thought process at that point? At that point, I think I knew kind of in my mind a major reason. I mean, I'd been started just barely at that point to get into recovery, like for, you know, addiction recovery, talking to a counselor for the first time. I started going to 12 step meetings. Just, I was very barely in the early stages of that. And I knew that that played a huge component in just being confident in getting into a relationship and comfortable. And that that was a whole side of what you would have to talk with somebody about potentially if you're going to get married. So as soon as you said that, as soon as I got that phone call, I totally remember that. I kind of remember in my mind, like, okay, yeah, I know what you're talking about. I know what you're referring to. You don't get, like, I kind of saw the whole thing, but I also understood. I'm like, you know what? I owe you an explanation on that. And, you know, let me just tell you where I'm at. And that was for me, which was huge. I'd never told anybody that I dated about my addiction or struggles in that arena. So it was a big deal. At this point, you had pretty much only told family or A few people. Yeah, like a few family members and then bishops, like, or priesthood leaders. So this wasn't like at all something you were telling your buddies or that it was like an open conversation with people at all? It was probably, I count on like one hand how many people I told. Okay, and the intention with telling me was... Basically for closure for you. I mean, I could tell when you called, I could tell you're upset. I could tell there was just kind of like a what happened, you know, this confusion. 
And I felt like, I'm like, yeah, and that's such a crappy thing to do somebody right before Christmas. Like <laughs> she needs to know and let me give her closure. Cause I, I was, I really dead set, I mean, it was dead set or thought 100%. Once I tell you why you're going to be like, oh, okay. Have a nice life. Thank you. Yeah. We'll see you later. I 100% thought that. And I'm like, hey, I'll just close this out. I'll give you closure and you, this will make sense. And so interestingly, that's not what happened. So Neil said, okay, let's go on a drive. He came over and picked me up and we went on a drive. We drove up to this kind of lookout point in the parking lot by, what is that grocery store? Not Macy's. Is it Macy's? I don't even know. Oh. They've changed it a few well, times, but it's just above on the east side of Salt Lake or right, just east of two fifteen, like thirty nine hundred south. We were just in this parking lot, big parking lot that overlooked the whole valley, and it was snowing. And I just will never forget you t- turning to me and saying, "I have a problem with pornography." And if you had told me before that that would happen, I would have said, "Oh yeah, I I would have." immediately been like, okay, thank you. (laughs) Nice knowing you. Good luck with that. But there was something about the spirit when you told me that I just felt the spirit hit me and just immediately felt peace. And like, instead of hurry and run away, the answer was just listen. So I think I just asked you some more questions about, well, tell me what that looks like and how you're dealing with it. And we just talked for a long time. What other memories do you have of that? I mean, I remember even further still, I mean, there's a part, I remember the topic coming up of pornography, oddly enough, like when we first met very briefly and I just got the sense of like, yeah, that's a, that's a no go. Like very quickly from you, it was like a, that is a a non-negotiable. That's a Mm non-negotiable. That's, that's not going to work for me which I'm totally understandable. And so I always remembered that in the back of my mind. And so I paired two and two together and was like, okay, I'm going to tell her. And it's going to be like, uh, yeah. Well, right, let me we'll give some, later. yeah, let me give some context to that too. So I've talked about this before, but before my first marriage, I had the very stereotypical list of this is what I want in a husband. You know, like I had young women's lessons at church where it was like, write down everything you want which is so funny. But I had written down the very common, I want someone who's tall and who's funny and who is wanting to get an education and is going to work hard and make good money. And just lots of very, now looking back, lots of very materialistic and worldly things that weren't really going to make up a really strong, healthy marriage. So after going through a not great marriage that had lots of trouble and turmoil, I basically made that list again, and I tried to do it in the exact opposite way, trying to think of, okay, what are the things that are going to really, really matter? Like whether we're skinny or fat or old or young or kids or no kids or whatever, you know, I tried to think of like, what are the things that are really going to just absolutely matter forever? At the very, very top of my list was someone who was really strong in their testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which you were. And that was that was the thing that initially attracted me to you the most, is you didn't act like, oh, yeah, it's not cool to be like too churchy or too into, I don't want, like I go to church, but I don't want to talk about it. There were a lot of guys like that. 
So that was at the very, very top of my list. But I wrote a whole list out of things like someone who's willing to work hard, someone who is honest, someone who, you know, I had made a big long list. And that was one of the things on the list was not an addiction to pornography. So you knew that that was one of the things that was important to me. So of course, like that makes total sense that you would be like, well, this is going to be a non-negotiable for her. Yeah. And again, if you had told me this is what's going to happen, I probably would have said, oh yeah, I'd just walk right away from someone like that. But it was different when I was in the moment and the spirit spoke to me and said, just listen. The spirit didn't say immediately in that moment, you're still going to marry this guy. (laughs) It was just more of a, just listen, just be open-minded, listen to what he has to say. That was surprising to get like additional questions back. I I mean, I literally thought I was going to say this and it was going to be like, maybe silence for a minute, then, okay, well, I understand. And then a polite, like, good luck with that. Have, have good, good luck and please take me home. Yeah. But to get questions back, I was like, whoa, okay. We just had a conversation. I honestly don't even remember. I mean, I t- talked about what I was doing. I was like, hey, I'm starting to go to these 12 step meetings. I'm, and it wasn't in an effort to be like, I've got a problem with pornography, but like, hey, I'm doing all this stuff. And please, you know, I just was like, hey, this is just what I'm doing. Like I'm going, I've started going to these meetings. I'm trying to meet a counselor and still thinking in my mind, this isn't going to go anywhere. Well, and I want to just point out too, just to reiterate your point, it wasn't like, well, it's not that big of a deal. There was no defensiveness about it. There was no like, but it's not actually going to be a problem. I don't know. There wasn't anything like that. You were just really humble about it. And like, yeah, this is, this is what it is. And I'm, I've been dealing with it this way. I've worked with bishops my entire life to try to overcome this. We talked about like how you had cleaned up and gone on your mission and had a great experience there and thought you were going to come home and never have that problem again and how it just creeped back up. And so I remember talking about all of these things and then just feeling, feeling calm, feeling like, you know what, just give this guy a chance and just see what happens. And I want to point out too that here's a flaw that I had in this from pretty early on. Neil and I like tried so many different things for years. Like, okay, maybe you can check in with me. Maybe you can tell me how things are going or once a day or once a week. Like maybe, I think we started with like once a week. You can tell me how the week was. And I totally had this rescuer mentality of like, I'm going to love you so much and you're going to love me so much that you're going to want to be really good for me and we are going to conquer this. And I'm going to do whatever it takes to be committed. The more I fell in love with you, the more I was like, this is going to be something that I'm going to help you fix. (laughs) Yeah. Which... I think it's well-intended. Totally well-intended. But then after many, many, many years of doing recovery, the longer I did it, the more I realized that doesn't work. But I think that's one thing to really pause and pay attention to is do you feel an immediate need to jump in and be the the rescuer, the savior, the fixer? Because that might not be the most healthy way to go about things. And I'm not saying if you feel like you want to help, that means that you're unhealthy and you shouldn't get married because we still got married and I still believe it was the right thing to do. But that way of trying to fix the problem in the long run made things worse. If anything, it prolonged your ability to take control of your recovery yourself. So I just want to point that out that I think sometimes people 
interestingly, I think sometimes people who have a propensity to be codependent will be attracted to someone who has an addiction or has totally. a problem because it's like, oh, let me come in this is a project. and have an identity being your fixer, being your savior, being the one who's going to rescue you. Well, and I, one of my, my sponsor early on, he shared this analogy with me. He's in, he's in recovery. He like runs a few recovery centers or some sober living houses, but so he talks about this stuff. Not your Salt Lake sponsor. No, no, no. You're talking about your Orange County sponsor. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So he, what he talked about was just this analogy of, of chasing somebody off a cliff. You have like an addict who in their addiction is running towards a cliff and they're going to, they're just going to run their life off of a cliff. And then you've got family members or well-intended people chasing them, trying to like obviously do all they can to stop them from running off this cliff. But the farther, the harder that the the family, the the girlfriends, the whatever chase the addict, the faster he runs towards the cliff. And it eventually just ends up running him off the cliff. They chase him off of the cliff. But there's this kind of interesting phenomenon that happens is once people stop chasing the addict, the addict then stops and is like, wait a minute, I'm not being chased. Mm -hmm. And then doesn't run for the cliff. In the right light and understanding kind of the right way to do that, which can be very, it's not always just ultra cut and dry, but just the concept of I'm going to come in and I'm going to save somebody and I'm going to, I'm going to do it. And because you love me, you're going mm-hmm. to do this. Like we went through that process and that was kind of what I was my experience with it. And and later on in the story, we'll get to it. It was once you stop chasing, then it, it kind of flipped it. It me. allowed you yeah. to take control. So I, I point that out only because if you're listening to this and you're someone who's like, oh, I feel this compelling need to save this person or that I might be their only hope. That is not a good reason to marry someone. I'm laughing because I'm thinking of like a bunch of Disney movies that I've seen. Like well, why? and Hollywood totally perpetuates that. <laughs> Beauty and the Beast, that. like she comes in, she like, yes. I'm going to get the beast, you know, I'm going to save him, I'm going to, you know. Soften him, soften and, him and love him into being like the man he should be. Innately in the character of women to, to be nurturing and yes. like to do that. But it can be just devastating in this scenario. And it can go the other way too. There obviously are plenty of women who are addicts and you could be a man or a mom or a sister or brother of someone who where the man is in love with a woman who is or or whatever yeah yeah. or you could definitely be a rescuer as a man is what i'm saying totally in any kind of relationship whether it's sexual orientation or anything like that i just want to be really clear that like this can obviously happen with any gender with any person. No, that's right. I do think that women in general have a need and kind of this desire to, like you said, nurture and fix or help people. But then again, men have a desire to fix people too. I mean, my dad's totally that way. My dad loves to be like, how are we going to fix this? You know? (laughs) And I mean that in the most endearing way. I love that about my dad. Anyway, if you feel like, oh my gosh, I can't, I have to be with this person or they might not survive. Not a good reason to marry someone. Or if the other way around, they're saying that, like, yeah. I need you or mm-hmm. I'm not going to make it. Like, that's not, not a recipe a, no. for success. Yep. But let's move on. So you can go to our blog 
If you go to mintarrow.com slash ARP, then you can read the whole entire story. But just to fast forward really quickly, we dated, we got engaged at about the year mark. And then right after that, Neil was having, you know, some slips and relapses and wasn't being totally honest. And so that ended up in us breaking off our engagement, which was devastating. But actually, sorry, I need to rewind. So before we got engaged, before we got engaged, we had an experience where, and I had had several feelings about marrying Neil and feeling really good about it. And we had been talking about getting married. And I know that he had said he had had good feelings too. But then that same, like, that same temptation to not commit that Neil had for many, many years would creep back in. And when things would get a little bit uncomfortable, he would want to pull out and be like, you know what, maybe this isn't right. Maybe we shouldn't be together. And he kept doing that. And then I would be like, but I thought you said that you had these feelings for me. And so it was a very much like up and down thing, not feelings for me, but feelings about that we should get married and that that was right. So it was up and down and up and down. And then finally, I think we were like, okay, are we doing this or are we not doing it? And we decided, and this isn't necessarily like the right thing for everyone, but this was how it happened for us. We decided to pray about it together once. And we, it was like on a Sunday, I can't remember if it was before or after, like we had like a little Sunday dinner together. And then we just knelt down in my bedroom and prayed together about whether we should get married. And it was, the spirit was so strong. It was an undeniable, I was crying, you were crying. I think I've seen you cry like three times ever in the 13 years that I've known you, you weren't weeping, but you were crying. And it was like, it was an undeniable yes. Yeah. And it was, we, so we also, we made this list. We made a list of pros and cons of us being together. And we went through this whole list of pros and then we got to the cons. There's nothing. And we both like drew a blank. We couldn't. This this is in my closet currently framed. Um, I still have this note. We still have the note. It's on like a very just cheap piece of paper that it's nothing fancy, but it was just this like little notebook that we wrote it in. And right after we made that list, we knelt down and prayed and just had both an undeniable, super strong from the spirit. Yes, we should get married. And so we got engaged. And then, like I said, we got unengaged and that was heartbreaking. And then it didn't last too long. Us like being broken apart. I think we started talking not too long after that, a couple, two or three weeks after, and talked, started kind of seeing each other again. It was really weird going from like being engaged to being like, are we kind of dating? I don't know what we're doing. But I just think our feelings for each other were really strong. And and I think also like it was hard for me to let go of that undeniable feeling that we should get married. And and I, a huge differentiation too with this relationship versus maybe others that were unhealthy or that may not have been right is that Neil was always trying. Like when I talk to people, I say, there's a couple of things. First of all, the spirit told me yes and gave me an undeniable yes. But second of all, you are always trying. And there's a huge difference between someone who is actively working and wants to get better and someone who's like, in denial or not showing that effort of showing up to meetings and working and always wanting to talk through things with their ecclesiastical leader or whatever. And so I saw that effort and I also felt that spirit saying like, yes, this is right. So we got reengaged, worked through a lot of turmoil, a lot of 
hard things as far as like after we broke up, people being like, why are you doing this? Like, you know, this guy has these problems. Why would you marry him? But the why would I came back to over and over. I felt God tell me that this was the right thing to do. And it was so undeniable. It was such a strong spiritual experience that I couldn't deny it. And I also felt like, well, I'm imperfect. So how can I look at him and say like, well, your sins are worse than mine or you're, you're more messed up than I am. I don't know. And, and there are absolutely, there are situations where it's just not the right thing, or maybe that person's not ready to get married or it wouldn't be the right decision. But for me, I just kept feeling the spirit confirm to me when I would pray about it, that it was the right thing. There was a point in time, though, in our engagement after we were engaged the second time where Neil had like a little slip and it it wasn't like a big major thing. He had been doing well for a long time, but there was a slip and we had been both seeing the same counselor in this like outpatient rehab therapy thing that he had been doing. Um, He and I both sometimes met together and sometimes met separately with this counselor and I went to him and said, I just don't know if I can do this and was kind of freaking out because Neil had had this slip and it just freaked me out. And I thought, I don't, I don't know if I can do this life with him of like instability. And this literally was one of the reasons like we wouldn't be married without this, this guy who was our counselor or therapist handed me this talk called cast not away. Therefore your confidence by Jeffrey R. Holland. And also this guy really knew, he knew my heart, he knew Neil's heart. And I think that he saw how hard Neil was working and that like, even notwithstanding his imperfections, he had such a good heart and wanted so badly to do the right thing and be in the right place and be spiritually prepared to commit to me and and have like a really good life together. So this was this was the part in that talk, Cast Not Away, Therefore Your Confidence, that really spoke to me and by Jeffrey R. Holland. And he says, with any major decision, there are cautions and considerations to make. But once there has been illumination, beware the temptation to retreat from a good thing. If it was right when you prayed about it and trusted it and lived for it, it is right now. Don't give up when the pressure mounts. Certainly don't give in to that being who is bent on the destruction of your happiness. Face your doubts, master your fears, cast not away, therefore, your confidence. Stay the course and see the beauty of life unfold for you. And I feel like that was 100% right for me in that moment. And when I read it, I felt, I felt it. Like I felt, again, the Spirit saying, yes, I've already told you that this is right many times, but you had this undeniable spiritual experience of you two should get married. I've told you that many other times. And so that was it. That was enough for me to say, yeah, I have felt this. And it would be different if I read that and then it was just like, no, this isn't the right thing. And I've talked about this before on the podcast, but the reason that I feel like I, when people ask me, honestly, this is my answer. When people ask like, what happened in my first marriage? My honest answer is I married someone that God told me not to marry. Like I had more than one 
very strong spiritual promptings to not marry my first husband. And I just did it anyway because I was so afraid of really, really silly things like never having the opportunity to get married again, not being able to have the beautiful wedding that my parents had planned and spent so much money on, disappointing people who were flying in from all over the country, like just silly things that I look back and think, wow, I was more worried about messing up that event than I was about the entire rest of my life that was going to happen after the event, after the wedding. I was more worried about messing up the wedding and my chance to ever have a wedding again than I was about what that marriage was going to look like. And and even when God told me very, very strongly more than once, do not do this. I just did it anyway because I didn't have the guts to say no. And But it was the exact opposite feeling every time I prayed about it. And when I read that talk, it was like God just kept telling me, this is right. This is what I want you to do. It's all going to be okay. So I've talked a lot. What, what was your experience through all of this? It's such an up and like, it just was such a tumultuous time. Like it still is so hazy on like all the details of it. But yeah, I mean, basically having that anchor point was everything for me. And then even then, it's like I still needed reassurances, and I got those. I feel like, God, there were several, a few times where I had different experiences where I had, like, reassurances of, like, this is right. And I think one thing I realized is there was so much opposition and so many challenges and just unbelievably hard things to work through with it that I think I learned in that process that, like, just because there are challenges or something is hard or difficult, that does not equate to it being wrong. Sometimes, a lot of times, what the Spirit prompts us to do is difficult, mm-hmm. challenging, and requires a lot. And And I think that's something that I used to kind of get all freaked out about, like, oh, this must mean it's wrong because it's not, it's, this is really hard or this is so challenging or awkward. But I think having those reassurances, having that spiritual experience, and I do think, like, I I remember there's two conversations that I had with your dad. The first one, he said something really interesting about when basically more or less asking for your hand in marriage. And the first one, he, he didn't know that I had an addiction or, you know, anything like that. But, I mean, one thing that he said that kind of has always stuck with me, I told him about this experience. I'm like, we prayed together. It was so powerful. And he's, you know, he talked about choice and he's like, you can choose, basically you can choose your way out of that. Like Mm -hmm. you can still every day by the choices you make, choose to adhere to that and follow through and stay close. Or you can, you can choose your way out of it too. Like, so I, I, it's always stuck with me that there has to be a continual, like daily choice to choose this person. And even though you had a powerful spiritual experience, your agency can can sway it either way. Yeah. And how you choose to follow that prompting or stick with that, that's something through that whole process of courtship and dating and just gnarly things that we had to go through and work through. It took constant choice, constantly using your agency to basically opt in like every day. So let's talk about my parents because at this point, my parents are so in love with Neil, so supportive. They And my dad has said 
And this was a huge moment right after my brother Jake got home off his mission. We were all in St. George and we had this beautiful evening little spiritual devotional and it was under the stars. And I remember my dad saying to Neil, there's no one that I would rather have as a son-in-law married to Corinne than you. And my parents just love and respect and admire Neil so much. But very understandably at the time, they were like, do not do this because they saw me already go through so much heartache with being divorced before, then how hard it was when we broke off our engagement and then understanding why we broke it off. When we got re-engaged, they were just like, this is a recipe for disaster. You're marrying someone who has an addiction that they still struggle with. And so, yeah, I completely look back on that and say, I'm sure I would have done the exact same thing knowing yeah. what they knew I think at that as a point. Parent, I would have said the same thing. And then even at the, at the time I was like, yeah, I, I get what you're saying and I, I can't help but agree with you. Like <laughs> this looks like a very bad choice probably from where you're sitting. Having said that though, I think it is easy to say like, oh no, never, like don't ever marry someone who has an addiction, but, but let's take a step back. And if you have more than one child, think about, okay, what if your child has an addiction? Do you want them? What if one of our four kids, Neil, or soon to be five, has an addiction? Do we want that life for them to say, if you struggle with addiction, especially looking at their heritage, my grandpa was an alcoholic, you have addiction, obviously you're an addict and you have addiction in your bloodlines. They are genetically have a propensity to possibly be an addict. Like the chances are of our five kids that we will have one or more of them may struggle with addiction. So do I want to be able to look at them and say, there's no chance for you? Like if this is your personality, if this is something you struggle with, you should never get married or you don't deserve to get married. Obviously, if you flip it around that way, you you look at it a little bit differently, right? And when I was in love with you and had these really strong feelings that God told me that it was right for us to get married, I also had this impression over and over that there was no way God would allow so many of his children to struggle with something without a solution. It just didn't make sense to me. I thought, why would he allow this plague to affect so many of his children and have it be like a spiritual prison of once you find yourself in this position, there is no way out. That's just not how the gospel of Jesus Christ works. And we learned that once we finally got into true recovery through ARP and doing the 12 steps and realizing that the atonement of Jesus Christ really can help you overcome anything, including addiction. But the addict himself or herself has to completely be ready to do that all on their own, not because they're trying to please someone else or be good enough for someone else or complete someone else. And that's kind of another podcast for another day. But I would say, to rewind and talk about like families and family support, to have a ton of compassion for people who love you if they're telling you this is a bad idea because they're telling you that because they love you and they want the best for you. And at the same time, I don't regret my decision, obviously. Like we, not only do we have a really wonderful, incredible marriage, not a marriage that has been perfect or easy. You know, we've gone through some major ups and downs throughout the years, but there's literally no one I would rather be with 
on the entire planet Earth than you. And I also think we've been able to do such incredible things together because God told us, yes, this is the right thing. I want you two to be married because I think he saw our potential. He saw all the good that we could do together. And I think he saw too, this is going to take them a few years to figure it out. It's going to be a bumpy road for a while. And even after you totally got into recovery and started living in recovery and got sober, like it's not like it's just been perfectly smooth sailing from there. We've had other hard things that we've gone through, but so does every marriage, first of all. And then second of all, I think that God can see the whole thing. So that's my ultimate. When I give people advice about, should I marry an addict? I tell them these things. I say, number one, it is your responsibility to stay as close to the spirit as you can. Do everything you can to strengthen what I call your spiritual Wi-Fi. If you're way out in the boonies and you're nowhere near like a cell tower or you have very weak Wi-Fi because you're so far away from the source, it's going to be really hard for you to get good, solid answers from God. So that means if you're hardly ever praying or you're not reading your scriptures or you're not doing anything to strengthen your spiritual connection to God, then I'm not saying you won't get answers, but they just might be spotty. They might be harder to hear. So your responsibility, if you're trying to decide who to marry, and that's addict or not, is to be as close to the spirit as you can be. So that's number one. And for me, the more, we had an amazing stake president when I was preparing to marry Neil, who said, he said, Are you, do you guys go to the temple? And we were like, yeah, we go once a month. We were all proud of ourselves. And he said, I, I want you to go once a week until you get married. This was when we were engaged and getting close to being married. And that was one of the best things. We were so on a spiritual high by the time we walked in and got the day we got married, we were so spiritually strong. And, you know, I was reading my scriptures every day, praying, going to the temple once a week, doing all the things that helped me be so spiritually strong so that if God had told me, nope, this isn't right. I would have known, I would have been able to hear it, but he just kept saying all along the way, this is right, this is right, this is the right thing, you're doing the right thing. And that gave me the full and complete confidence that on our wedding day, it was the exact opposite of my first wedding. Like first wedding, the the room that I got married in was just packed to the brim, standing room only. When you and I got married, it was like half full. And then we had a very like, our our reception, I bought like decorations from Desert Industries, which is like a thrift store. We had like a friend DJ. We had another friend do the catering. I mean, it was just like on a shoestring budget in some person's backyard of who was friends with one of my bridesmaids. I mean, everything about it was like low budget and not flashy. And I was so happy all day because I knew I was doing the right thing. And I was just full of the spirit. I knew I was doing what God wanted me to do. So again, first thing, make sure that your spiritual Wi-Fi is super strong and you're living as close to the spirit as you can. Number two is to have the courage to do what God tells you to do. In the first situation where everything looked picture perfect, God told me, do not do this. And I did it anyway, because I was so afraid of the world's perception of if I backed out or what my what I might be losing, like my only opportunity. Now I look back at that and think that is so silly. I wish that I had had more self-confidence to understand that that was such a lie. But Satan told me like, if you don't do this, you'll never get married. 
you will, this will be your only chance. So I didn't listen to God and I just married the wrong person. You know, I did something that God told me not to do. And then in contrast, even though there were people who loved me and really cared about me that said, don't do this. This is a bad idea. I, I had the courage to just say, I know it's right. I feel like God has told me that this is right, even though there was opposition and there were some people who supported us, but some people who weren't as supportive, I still was like, I got to do what I feel like the spirit has told me to do. I feel like God has told me that this is right. If you have those two things, you will not go wrong because God will never tell you to do something that turns out to be a bad idea because he can see the beginning from the end. He can see all, all of everything that's going to happen. So if you have the courage to follow what God tells you to do, you're never going to go wrong. And then I also think that there's a component too of looking at someone and saying, do they want to be, are they pointed in the right direction? And you were always pointed in the right direction, even when you weren't perfectly, like you hadn't nailed it yet but you were pointed in the right direction always. You were going to meetings. You were honest with your bishop. You were always making an effort to get better. And I think that it's very different if you've got someone who isn't willing to take those steps. So, but what's, now that I've said all of that, what's your advice? Pretty much, I mean, the same thing. Like one, your spiritual connection. And then just two, just what you said, I think, and and I've I've gotten this experience more as I've sponsored people in twelve step program in the twelve step program, of you can kind of tell like when I'm working with somebody who will ask me to sponsor them, and if there's not a willingness on their part, there's kind of nothing I can do to help them. If it's one, I mean, you'll have some people come because they have to, or somehow they're kind of forced into going to recovery meetings and they don't see it as a, well, they're like, well, it's not really a problem. It's kind of like, I don't have a problem. Kind of like if the, I, there is no problem stage. It's like, well, if you, if you don't feel like there's a problem, then there's no reason to work on a solution. There's no reason to get any better or do anything differently. So it's like, I think it just comes down to the willingness. Yep. Are you willing? Is this person willing to take actions and actions are going to speak louder than words. Like, are are you willing to take the actions? And I think for me, I genuinely was. I was doing it for myself. I mean, they didn't say that as lip service or to try and get a reaction of you. I legitimately was like, I know I don't want to do this. I, I really feel like this is wrong. And I, I do want to take actions and I am taking actions. And I'm not just saying that because I want a certain result from you or from our relationship. I've seen that also with people who come to recovery meetings who kind of maybe they're there because somebody suggested it or they want to kind of convince someone. But if they haven't convinced themselves, if they're not like in it for themselves in their heart, they're not going to keep showing it's up. Not gonna it's not going to be a longevity thing yeah. where they show up to meetings consistently. They call their sponsor. They're willing to work a 12-step program. They're willing to like they show up with the willingness, with the willing heart. If you can see the willing heart and that someone's really trying, that says so much to me. And here's the thing too. When we see people who come to meetings, you give me the formula of a person who has a willing heart and they show up and they work the steps. It works every time. I have not seen someone who shows up consistently, does the steps, works them with a sponsor and keeps showing up 
and their life doesn't get better. Yeah, totally. And I and I think it's okay to come into the program court ordered, so to speak, literally, right. literally. Like right. there are people that are literally court ordered. That or, is why my grandpa got sober. I mean, and or like someone basically is like, if that gets you there, and that's your reason for getting there, and then you catch it, and you open yourself up, and you're you're then willing. Great, yep. like that's totally fine too. The the willingness, and then the other thing I was going to say is, I think there was an expectation in my mind growing up, or I'd heard it in different places, like marriage is going to fix this. Marriage. Oh, we had a bishop that straight up said that to our faces. Marriage is going to, once you're married, this will no longer be a problem. And I think that marriage was like the solution or, you know, you hear it all the time. Like, oh, if, if this person could just find the right person, then they will change. Or then like that will be the solution. I do think there is something to that, but maybe to spark them in the right direction. I mean, it sparked me or motivated me in a good direction having you in my life. But I think that is the end all be all solution is like, once we get married, this is going to not be a problem. That's, that's not accurate. Well, and that's also very, you can see that in the fact that you still go to meetings every week. It's not like you marrying me took away your, I, I explain to people when they say like, oh, we're all addicts or we all have addictions. I'm like, no, <laughs> we're not all the same in that. And I try to explain to them, this is like someone who has a, a life-threatening reaction to a bee sting versus someone who gets a bee sting and it hurts, but you know they pull it out and they put some ice on it and it's better. And you know someone who has an addiction, in order for them to, if they're truly an addict, in order for them to truly live in recovery, they're going to have to work on it the rest of their lives. They will have to be committed to it enough to live a sober life. You have to live in recovery. There are two choices if you're an addict. You're either going to live in recovery or you're going to live in addiction. There's no like choosing to suddenly not be an addict. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I for people who are spiritual or members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, it's kind of like, let's say you repent, you get baptized, you know, you, you kind of do all those things that Christ told us to do to follow his gospel, then it's like, then are you done? Do you stop going to church? Do you not take the sacrament? Do you not? It's like, no, you press forward with steadfastness in Christ. Like you have to keep doing spiritual things each day of your life. And, and it's an eternal progression. It's a beautiful thing. Like that's how you progress spiritually and, and eternally is by Mm -hmm. following the doctrine of Christ, which is faith, repentance, baptism, feeling the spirit, renewing that, feel the spirit, and then enduring to the end. Like that is the process. That is the way. And basically all recovery is, is a broken down step-by-step way of, of doing that. I think people kind of get that in their mind of like, cool, I'll go to this, this meeting for 12 weeks and do a step a week. And then I'll, I'll take care of my stuff and then I'll be done and I'll be cured. And then I'll go back to living my life or, even with repentance, like I'll go in, I'll talk to my bishop or my pastor or whatever, I'll confess, and then I'll go back to living my life and go back to, you know, whatever I was doing. And it it just doesn't work that way to, to sustain that change. It's something that you're constantly engaging in, in a direction that progresses you eternally. And so that's how I look at it. I mean, that's kind of a different topic for another day, but, but just in general, yeah, I think, I think looking at is the heart in the right place? Am I pointed in the right direction? And then am I looking at marriage with the right 
perspective. Am I being codependent about it? Meaning, am I relying on this other person to fix me? Or am I relying on me turning my will over to God to fix me? Am I looking as that at that as the solution? Or am I trying to look at, okay, I'll just, I just got to get it to the marriage finish line and then that's going to fix all my problems. And, and that's just not the way that I've seen it work out for me or anybody really. Right. And I, I believe too, with any marriage, even if you have two people who are not addicts, if you're looking at it as, oh, you complete me and you, I'm going to marry you and then my life's going to be amazing. You're in for a rude wake up call (laughs) pretty soon after marriage that, that's not how it works, you know? And I think that, again, Hollywood perpetuates that. But really, the best marriage is when you have two people who are truly committed every day to trying to be better people, and then they complement each other, and they are both committed to that same type of lifestyle where they're trying to do good things and be good people. But if you're waiting for someone to come in and and be the Prince Charming or the Belle from Beauty and the Beast who's just going to, like magically wave a wand and fix all your problems and make life beautiful it's just not like that so but I do think there is something absolutely magical about God saying to you yes this is the right person this is the right thing and then being committed to that and then choosing that person every day for the rest of your life and choosing to walk through life's peaks and valleys and seeing each other through the good times and bad and And then seeing, just like I want to go back, I'll go back to this one more time where he says, stay the, stay the course and see the beauty of life unfold for you. I, that is absolutely what's happened to us. It hasn't always been easy or smooth sailing, but we have seen this beautiful life unfold that I never would have pictured for us. The way that things have gone and the amazing things, the blessings and the miracles that we've had in our life. Thanks so much for listening to Mint Arrow Messages. Make sure you follow us on Instagram at Mint Arrow. Subscribe to our Apple Podcasts and rate and review us if you like us. And to get show notes, go to mintarrow.com slash podcast. And you can even sign up to get show notes emailed right to your inbox. And we'll email you every time there's a new episode.